You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Nick, Nick, Nick. Indians. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Ever since we were married, we've lived above our incomes. Because of you, we've lived like millionaires. Anything you wanted, we've had. A holiday abroad, a new dress, or taking this house from us, doing it up and furnishing it. Even during the war, you had... I don't propose in front of my own brother to be made the scapegoat of your idiotic behaviour. There are money difficulties, I know. I'm simply not going to give up everything I love, everything I believe in, all the things I could never do without. That's all very well, but can we afford it? Can we? Somehow, yes. There must be more money. 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 Is that money, Mother? No, Paul, not quite. It's what causes you to have money. Oh. If you're lucky, you have money. That's why it's better to be born lucky than rich. If you're rich, you can always lose your money. But if you're lucky, you'll always get more money. I'm lucky. I can prove it. And I've got money in my money box. Lots of it. And I keep on getting it. So I must be lucky, mustn't I? There must be more money. There must be there more money. More money. There must be more money. There must be more money. There must be more Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It's always a pleasure. This week we are looking at The Rocking Horse Winner, based on a story by D.H. Lawrence. The 1949 film from Anthony Pellessier tells the story of a family where ne'er-do-well man can't meet the monetary demands of his spendthrift wife. Meanwhile, their oldest child gets a rocking horse for Christmas, which he can ride in a frenzied state until he gleans the winners of horse races, thus helping to secretly provide his mother with the lifestyle to which she's become accustomed. We're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you've not seen seen the rocking horse winner this is the 1949 version by the way i would highly recommend that you go check it out and come on back and listen to the rest of the podcast we will still be here so maitland when was the first time you saw the rocking horse winner and what did you think i believe that i first saw the rocking horse winner on television probably in the early 70s i found it very compelling in part because My mother was English, and I completely understand this English milieu of whispers, 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 and incredibly potent things that are unsaid and yet shape everybody's lives. It it was extremely vivid to me. Plus, I was completely captivated by the rocking horse itself, Which, on the one hand, is actually quite a handsome and elegant rocking horse. And on the other hand, looks like the horse that would be pulling Satan's chariot with incredibly huge teeth and its bizarre rolled back looking eyes. I, I was absolutely captivated by it. And it stuck in my imagination, well, until now. It's still there. I want to say that I saw this one in school. I've been looking through, because there are many adaptations of The Rocking Horse Winner, and I think I even, when I spoke to Peter Medak, uh, uh, 
maybe like a year or more ago, even talked to him about his version, which might have been right around the right time. That was 77. I would have seen this in probably 83, 84, something like that. But for some reason, even though this is a D.H. Lawrence story, I always in my mind had this as an O. Henry story. Uh, I guess it was the sadness and the... I don't know, kind of the irony of the story. I mean, it's no, um, you know, buying a watch fob and buying combs kind of a story, the gift of the Magi, but there's something about it that seemed very O. Henry-esque, and it could just be because I'm not as familiar with D.H. Lawrence as I probably should be. But when you brought this up as wanting to do this for an episode, I'm like, okay, I think I know the story, but I'd never seen it portrayed. If I had seen this 1949 version, I did not remember it as well as I should have because it is just a gorgeous, gorgeous film. And the cinematography in this movie, it is just wonderful. The use of light and shadow, wow, it really took my breath away, especially in some of the more heated parts of it. The, it is just a really well-directed film. You're absolutely right about the cinematography. I mean, that was Desmond Dickinson who shot things like City of the Dead, which I think most of us saw as, saw as Horror Hotel, which were just an inc- which was an incredible exercise in black and white and shadow and fog. And Rocking Horse Winter is very much the same thing. But I also completely see why you would have thought of it in an O. Henry fashion, because it is essentially a story of people who get what they want in the worst possible way. It's strange because there also was a little bit of almost like the monkey's paw kind of a thing to me as well. I just, I guess I kept thinking of what you just said, the the worst possible way for things to happen, because this is, it's a family melodrama shot like a horror film, because it does really highlight the horrors that can go on. And as you said, the things that are unspoken or whispered in this case the way that those can affect a family and just drive everyone to some very bad places. And you so beat me to the monkey's paw because that was the next thing I was going to say. Again, it's very much the, you got what you asked for, which is not necessarily what you wanted. It starts very normally. I mean, we have this whole idea of this mother and father, and it took me a long time before I could even determine if the father was the father. He just seemed so estranged from from everybody else. There's the, the mother, the father, and the uncle, and they are having conversations near the beginning of the film. And it just seems like the father... To me, anyway, it felt almost like he might have married into the family after the children were born. He didn't seem like he was a father in any way to me. He just seemed like he was this male figure in the household who just seemed removed from the household. Did you feel that same way? I completely concur with your feeling about it, though. I believe he actually is the father of those three children, uh, Paul, the main character, and his two younger sisters. But I think that he is very much posited in a very 1940s image of fathers, which is that they had very little to do with domestic life. They were supposed to go out and do business. And by doing business, they were supposed to support their families. But the maintenance of the household was completely not their affair. It was left to the mother to deal with 
what the kids were doing, uh, maintaining order between the kids, setting up the kids for the things that they were supposed to be doing in the future. And that's a very old-fashioned patriarchal view of what a father was supposed to be that in the context of this movie is portrayed as something extremely toxic because the entire family-centric part of the movie is left to the mother, played by Valerie Hobson. Uh, her name is Hester, although she actually has no name in D.H. Lawrence's story, but she's Hester in the movie, who is also incapable of really handling family things because she's incredibly selfish and self-centered. So everything that goes on with her kids is delegated to their nanny, who is depicted in the film as a very warm and loving person, but let's face it, she's the nanny. She's not the kid's mother. So she can't really make any major decisions for them. All she can do is look after them day to day and make sure that they have their nursery meals and that they have their stuffed toys and that they have their little books and that they have their routines while their mother swans around like the great lady she would like to be, but that her husband's salary won't actually let her be. That's a very, very volatile family dynamic. The father just seems so ineffectual. He isn't, as you said, he's not giving his wife as much money as she should have. The movie starts with a discussion of him possibly getting a new job. And so much of the family dynamic hinges upon the wife's brother, upon this uncle character who is the one who's helping out um, get the father out of debt uh, for no, no real altruistic reason. He mostly just wants to be able to uh, show his face at the club where some of these debt holders are. Uh, he also, um, the, the mother is putting upon him to put in a good word so that the, the husband can get a better job. So it feels like everything is, is, is at the feet of this uncle character of this brother who really is serving much more as the patriarch of the family than the husband is. And it's actually interesting because Uncle Oscar originally is set up as as being a kind of negative figure, somebody who is uh, the wife's brother, who is clearly doing much better in every respect that counts than her husband, and who's kind of shaming him. But in fact, as the film progresses, Uncle Oscar becomes a, quite a sympathetic character. He's particularly very sympathetic in his relationship to Paul, the oldest child in the family and the only boy, who is clearly a very sensitive kid, who's extremely aware of all of the tension in his parents' marriage, though he's too young really to comprehend exactly what it's all about. But it's clearly affecting him nonetheless. And Uncle Oscar is really good to him in a lot of ways. So it's one of the nice ways that this movie doesn't go right down the stereotypical road that it could have gone down. Oscar is definitely still there to humiliate the husband by pointing out that, yes, he's paid off his debt to the club and not because he likes the husband, whose name is Richard, but because, yes, he wants to be able to go to his club and not have to look into the faces of people to whom his wife's husband owns, owes money. But he's actually quite good to Paul, who is, I think, essentially a fatherless child, even though his father lives in their house. 
he's clearly not any kind of strong paternal figure to whom his son can turn. So it, it's very psychologically sophisticated and ambiguous in a lot of ways. And it's, it's one of the things that I think makes this an incredibly rewarding movie. It does open with that kind of a, an odd opening where we've got Paul coming in and going into this room, stacking up these boxes or getting on top of these boxes and looking through and looking down at this guy, Bassett, who's played by John Mills. And Bassett, every once in a while, he reminds me of Denim Elliott for some reason, but he is kind of a father to Paul as well. He seems to be somewhat of a protector, even though he... I don't know. I guess it's where you land on gambling because so much of this movie hinges upon gambling. It's odd that they're okay, that people in this film are okay with Paul and Bassett and eventually Uncle Oscar gambling when that's really what the downfall of the father is. He's a, a, a an, an iterate gambler who has lost all this money, but yet their plan to make money is through the racehorses. Well, yes, and as Uncle Oscar points out to Richard, his problem is just he's a terrible card player, and that's why he's lost so much money. The relationship between Paul and Bassett reminds me in a number of ways of The Fallen Idol, because it's about the relationship of a kid with a working-class man who ultimately is not an ideal father figure and yet who is a far better father figure than any other figure he has. You know, Bassett is deeply flawed. Bassett is a gambler. Bassett is also of the lower classes, which is extremely clear in the way that Hester treats him. He's also somebody who's physically damaged. He was wounded in the First World War. He has a pronounced limp, which has no doubt limited what he could do with his post-war life. And yet, he is somebody who is closer to Paul than his own father and his uncle. And he was a very warm presence. I mean, there's that scene in which Paul is climbing up to on, on, this, on this, this stack of boxes to look into Bassett's little home in what is basically a stable. And then, the you know, stuff falls down and he topples to the floor and Bassett comes in and that, that's kind of the beginning of the relationship. Bassett is a very warm and accepting person. And he's somebody who later on says, you know, I come from common people. And he does suggest that common people in certain ways have their relationships straight in a way that people who have more money don't because ultimately for them, family matters first and finances come second which is very, very much a part of a lot of English language literature, English literature specifically, of the 19th and early 20th centuries. And Paul is so sincere. You talked about his age and that he's maybe not at the age where he can really understand what's happening in the house, though those whispers, the, the his mother saying there's got to be more money, is being echoed throughout the house, literally, through this almost magical realism. And it's what comes up the stairs. I love the scene where we see her say there must be more more money, and then we follow the whispers of that up the stairs, up into Paul's room, where it seems to infect 
him and it seems to infect the rest of the house. And then that's what comes back to him when he eventually gets this uh, racehorse, this, this rocking horse. And when he is having this kind of uh, clairvoyancy uh, moment, we hear that as part of the soundtrack. The soundtrack is so wonderful in this thing, just to hear the layers of, of different sounds. There are times when well, there are thunderstorms, but the thunder sounds like the thundering of hooves. We hear the mother saying there has to be more money still echoing as part of that. And we just get this kind of subjective sound of him, uh, uh, for him when he's on the horse and the world seems to slip away. I love that at one point he's he's on the horse and he's getting this this clairvoyant look into the future and the mother and and I think it's the uncle and the nanny come in and they're talking and you hear none of their dialogue and it's completely silent. It's all within Paul's head and what he's hearing. And then the cinematography of that point. I mean, this is stuff that you know, this is 1949, and some of these shots, it's like, oh yeah, Hitchcock would do this in Marnie like 15 years later. There were just some really wonderful camera tricks that put you into that same state that Paul is in. The cinematography in this film is phenomenal, but I want to come back to the sound design, which is really fascinating for a movie this early. And one of my favorite sequences is the one in which Hester, the mother, goes to borrow money from the money lender in the bad neighborhood. And she's been to his little shop and uh, he has a pug and the entire background sound of that scene is the pug's breathing. And if you, if you know pugs, you know, they have a, they have a funny nasal huffy way of breathing because their faces are so short and that huffy nasal breathing underlines that entire scene. And it suggests a, a kind of desperation, a kind of doom that that you're born into because pugs can't help it. They were they were bred that way, and so they all huff in that freaky way. And it is really, really chilling. And that's something that I actually can't say that I had noticed until I watched this movie yesterday to prepare for this podcast. And that that sequence absolutely knocked me out because most movies of this period would have had some kind of soundtrack music over that sequence and it's not there the only thing that's there is that hugs puffy breathing and it's quite chilling it is when I watched it again yesterday, I missed the pug, and I was like, where is that coming from? What is that supposed to be? I had to rewind that scene. I was like, oh, okay. But but otherwise, it's like, what is happening? What is going on with this, this noise that's going on? Now, let's see what you got here. Mr. Saldoz, I was given your name. Never mind that. Yeah, just remarkable stuff, and it really puts you on edge. Absolutely, and that, I think, is the genius of this film, is that a lot of sequences that could have been shot in a slightly more conventional way that would still have worked as sequences are either shot or scored in a way that makes them incredibly acutely uncomfortable and forces you to focus on the visceral 
emotional pain of the characters who are in those sequences. You know, the mother in this film, Hester, is a very unsympathetic character. And yet in that sequence, it's very hard not to feel her discomfort and her humiliation at having to go and borrow 40 pounds, which on the one hand, at the time this movie was made, was not nothing. On the other hand, it's not $100,000. It's a relatively manageable sum of money, but she doesn't have it. And that's all there is to it. And so she has to go and borrow it from a moneylender and go into a bad neighborhood full of little street urchins who are running around the taxi cab that she takes in. And when she goes to leave, she realizes she can't even afford the cab to go back home. So she tells the cabbie that she's going to walk because it's such a lovely day. I mean, not even the cabbie believes that. And then that he even just throws her fare after her for those street urchins to then pick up. It's like, wow, that he just is so disdainful of her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And even those kids are disdainful of her because they recognize that she's a fancy lady who shouldn't be in their neighborhood. So if she's there, it's because there's something wrong with her. She's done something bad or somebody in her family has done something bad and she's there. I think those kids know looking for money to try and fix something. That is actually quite stunning and very psychologically sophisticated. It took me a while before I realized where the actor who played Paul was from. And then once I got it, I was like, oh, okay, of course. Of course, he was the guy that played Oliver Mm -hmm. in Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want some more. What? 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 Some more? But it just took me so long to finally figure that one out. And... I didn't realize what a career he had had afterwards being a producer and even directing um, a lot of like Monty Python episodes. <laughs> I thought that he might have been continued to be an actor for a long time, but he only acted in a few more films after that and then moved into uh, producing and directing. Uh, absolutely. He only had four film credits. He was Tom Brown in a version of Tom Brown's School Days, Oliver in Oliver Twist the star of this film, and I forget what the fourth was, but he had a very limited acting career, despite the fact that, you know, it's always hard to say with child actors whether they are great actors or whether they're just well-directed, but I think he's phenomenal in Rocking Horse Winter. He has a very sensitive face, and I think he might, quite frankly, had he chosen to have had a very good career as an actor, but clearly decided not to, decided he would rather be on the other side and produce and direct. I love the look that it gets on his face when he's in those states, those kind of clairvoyant states. I was reminded almost of, uh, uh, what was it, Simon from Lord of the Flies. I just, it, it was almost like he was going to go into an, uh, an epileptic seizure after some of those. He just kind of draws his, his mouth back. And again, the cinematography just really emphasizes how distorted his face is when he is in having those almost fits when he's trying so hard to get lucky. And I love when he's there. I mean, those scenes of him, especially at the end when he's just whipping that horse as hard as he possibly can and just thrashing about and rocking on that. And then to use the shadows of the horse on the wall. Oh my God, just 
beautiful, beautiful stuff. And just so, again, like I said, it's shot like a horror film. It is actually frightening to see this kid just in this frenzy, flailing away, trying to get the names of the winners of these horse races. That's right. The horses who don't have names yet. It's extremely eerie and it's really fascinating. Also, I'm going to go there and just say the creepy thing, but it's also incredibly sexual. There's something extremely erotic about the scenes in which you see him riding that, that rocking horse that is very disturbing given that he's a child of, what do you think, nine, ten? Um, yeah, he's right on the edge of puberty. There's an intensity to those riding scenes that it's hard not to interpret in a sexual fashion, even though there is nothing else in the way his character is depicted to suggest that he is anything except a child who is still in that pre-sexual age, you know, right before yeah, puberty comes on and suddenly everything is different. It's very creepy and very disturbing and, again, adds immeasurably, I think, to the, the eeriness of this film. I mean, there's an intensity to those sequences that it is hard to, to watch without being disturbed by them. Well, I'll take your metaphor and I'll, I'll take it a little bit farther and talk about how when he finally can see who those winners are, he says that he gets there. He's like, when I get there on my horse, then you know everything becomes clear. So it sounds almost like a little orgasm that he's having. Oh, thank you for not making me say that. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and it's his Uncle Oscar, I think, who uses that term as well, who says, yeah, you should, you should stick with it till you get there. What can you say? The system that they finally work out, I'm, I'm amazed that they ever really finally go through with the whole plan because he has Bassett put some money down on a horse because he thinks that he's very lucky. And this is before he has had some of these visions that he has. And Bassett puts down the money, and of course the horse loses. And you would almost think that the story would end there. But Mm -hmm. then... I believe that was paper. Paperclip, yes. But then once Paul starts to have these visions, I'm very surprised that they allow him to bet again, and then the bets just kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger until they have a whole system really kind of worked out. And then the uncle kind of comes into the picture. And again, I thought, well, he's going to stop it, and Paul's going to have this ability, but nobody's going to listen to him, and so it's just going to go to waste. But no, everybody's fine with exploiting his ability. And that is definitely, again, one of the many disturbing things about this film. It, it's the willingness of adults to exploit this very young child, this very young, very emotionally open, very kind child who clearly just wants everybody to be happy. He wants his mother to be happy. He wants his father to be happy. He wants to make people happy. And the way he can do that, of course, is by exploiting whatever this connection is that he he reaches by getting there on that horse that allows him to predict derby winners and well not derby winners throughout but race winners although the derby is of course the last race and it it is actually really shocking frankly it, it it's a film that I try to think of, of how you could make this film today and I think it would be really difficult 
because it relies so much on adult exploitation of a very young minor child. Well, I think the last version that I saw listed in IMDb and and, uh, a book about um, the adaptations of D.H. Lawrence stories was a 2002 version called Pharaoh's Heart. Now, I was unable to track that down to watch it. And there was a, a short, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, that was... Uh, I can't remember when that one was, but it was more contemporary because I remember Eric Stoltz was in that one. So they're still doing it, but I don't know if they're necessarily doing it nearly as successfully because, like we were saying, the uncle isn't necessarily a bad guy in this movie where he could be the bad guy very successfully. He could come in and say, well, your your father is a screw-up. Here I am paying all of his debts off. Your mother is living beyond her means, so you're going to be my meal ticket, and I'm going to use you to pay off all the debts and all of the hardships that I've had to incur because of them. But he doesn't do that, which is remarkable to me. I think the most recent version of it that I've seen is the Michael Amoreto one, which I actually think it is very good, but doesn't have the emotional resonance of this version because it's more stylized and more abstract and doesn't, I think, really dig into the incredibly painful family dynamic that underlines the story. Of course, in the Almereda version, you understand that the mother is a spendthrift, that she's irresponsible, that she lives the life she aspires to have even though she can't finance it and her child winds up being the way in which she can pay for it. But it doesn't have the potency that this version has because I think there's less detail to it. Which is interesting because Rockin' Horse Winter is a short story and so a short film I think looks like the better way to do it rather than expanding it to a feature. But I think that expanding it to a feature allows a lot more room to look at the various family dynamics that drive Paul ultimately to kill himself, essentially. Spoiler, but there you go. Uh, for the benefit of his, of his family because he is the one who can do it. And nobody else can. His father can't. His uncle is not willing to. His mother is hopeless. So he is the one who takes on the entire burden of his family's financial security. That's kind of, that is stunning and really heartbreaking, frankly. There's a moment early on when he is asking his mother about luck and about money and is luck money and are the two you know, related. And she's talking about how unlucky his father is and how he must be very lucky. Paul must be very lucky because he's got tons of money. And he talks about all the the coins that he has in his money box and him talking about giving his mother all of his money. It breaks your heart because that's all he wants to do. To your point earlier, he just wants to make everyone happy. And he eventually does the age-old thing and equates money and happiness, and then he will do anything that he possibly can to the point of ruining himself, by the point, to the point of killing himself, basically, with this gift that he has just to make other people around him happy. Yeah, although interestingly, he does not equate money with his own happiness. He equates his mother's happiness 
And it's not even with his family's happiness. It's with his mother's happiness. And, you know, that's a very D.H. Lawrence thing. The relationships between sons and mothers is a very fraught topic in D.H. Lawrence's work. But in an interesting way, I think it, it is distilled to its purest form in The Rocking Horse Winter because it's a short story. There, there isn't a lot of side narrative to it. It is very direct, very to the point, and very focused on this family. And the sheer destructiveness of boys trying to make their mothers happy is so foregrounded that there might as well be like five gigantic spots on it, frankly. I was very surprised that the film doesn't drag because knowing that this was made from a short story, I was like, oh gosh, because we've seen short stories just kind of dragged out and beaten to an inch of their lives where it just feels like they're, you know, two little butter spread across too much bread. And you're like, oh gosh, this is going to be painful. And no, fortunately it moves and it never feels like we're in the doldrums. There is a point to every scene and it doesn't feel like this could really survive without all of the scenes that are in it. It's not like you can sit here and easily go, well, that whole subplot could should just go away. And that would make this an hour instead of an hour and 10 minutes. And this should go away, and that'll cut it down to a half an hour and maybe a few more minutes, and you could slap in a few commercials and make this a Twilight Zone episode. But no, it doesn't feel like it is belaboring the point. This, I think, is a, a, an unusual example of a short story that has been expanded without padding it out in ways that aren't beneficial to the story. All of the things that you see in the film that are not in the short story are completely relevant to what the story was about. And they aren't played for too long. They really do just expand on characters who appear briefly in the story, but who are important in various ways and who can absolutely benefit from another 10 minutes of screen time. There is not a minute in this movie that I could see cutting out, frankly. I want to ask you about the end of the film and what your thoughts are about the end, because after Paul dies, Bassett sets the rocking horse aflame. Beautiful, beautiful image. But there's a whole debate between him and Hester about what to do with that money inside of Paul's money box. And I'm very curious to get your take on that. I actually love Bassett's decision, which is not to burn the money, because as, as Hester encourages him to do, because she's now in this paroxysm of belated maternal grief and wants everything associated with Paul's racehorse predictions and money winning destroyed. And Bassett's attitude is, you know what? I come from a poor family. I come from poor people. Everybody I know is poor. I'm not going to take money and burn it up. Money can do some good. I can give it to people. I can do, although he does not say that, but I think that's implicit in his speech to her. He's not given to histrionics. He's somebody who has grown up hard, who has done the best he could with his life, and who recognizes that money is not the root of all evil, that money can be used for good things, and that burning up the money that was earned through Paul's race predictions isn't going to make anybody's soul clean again. 
It's, it's not going to make his mother's soul clean, but it could be used to help people. And I think it's a surprising ending because at the moment that she says, I want you to burn it with the horse, you could easily see somebody saying, right, well, that's exactly what he should do because this money is in some way ill-gotten, though it's not really, and it contributed to the death of this young child, and it's tainted somehow. But then you have this voice of complete practicality saying, money's just money, and you can use this money to make other people's lives easier, to ease the burden of their existence. I think that's actually quite profound. What did you think, though? Did you want him to burn the money or to keep the money? No, I totally wanted him to keep the money and use it to do good. I mean, all Paul wanted was for the money to do good. He wanted the money to help make his mother happy, and it didn't because nothing would ever make his mother happy. So my feeling is, yeah, let Bassett take that money and give it to the kind of people he grew up among, poor people who had nothing, and give them a, a little bit of a possible future or even just a little bit of happiness for a short period. I, I completely, I was completely for take that money and give it to people who could really use it. When they were talking about burning the money, my heart was just like, no, no, you cannot do that. I don't know if it's just that I'm a greedy SOB or what, but I was just like, no, 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 you cannot burn that money. Just do not do that because you will never be able to get it back. You're speaking irrationally. You're speaking with your emotions. You're not using your head. So I was just really upset when they were talking about burning that money. Well, and especially I felt like, you know what? That money doesn't actually matter that much to Hester, even though throughout the film, she has been defined by her desire for more money. But the bottom line is, if that money were, were all to go up in flames, her family would look after her. That is not a Bassett's family, just for example. And Bassett was certainly closer to Paul than his own mother, because Bassett talked to him. Bassett liked him. They, they hung out together. That money is much better used to do something than to do nothing. And what's fascinating to me, actually thinking about this now, is that that argument connects directly to political arguments right now about certain foundations, and I think I'm just going to not name them, whose money includes donations from sources that one could call tainted, and yet is used to do good. Money, money is money. And even if it comes from a place that is not ideal, it can be used to do good things. So throwing it into the flames is a great dramatic gesture, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. Trying to think of other films where the money either gets away, is burned up, you know, of course, I think of the uh, the end of the asphalt jungle where that suitcase just falls apart and all the money goes blowing everywhere. Mm -hmm. But at least it still exists. You know, somebody will find that. I mean, most likely air, airport <laughs> security will find that money, but people can still find the money. It still exists. But, yeah, what he, what she wants him to do would just be to completely take it out altogether. 
And what she wants him to do has everything to do with her guilt and nothing to do with what that money has the potential to do for other people. This is the point at which she realizes what a bad mother she's been. And she wants some kind of soul-saving gesture for herself, but it doesn't actually have to do with her doing any kind of penance because her penance could be a lot of things, but burning that money is not really a valuable one. There are lots of things she could do if she wants to expiate her guilt for the way that she pressured her son. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Paul and the uncle have worked together, mostly the uncle, to set up the trust for the mother so that every year on her birthday, she'll get, I don't know, 5,000 pounds or something like that. So she has had no problem spending that money. There's a point in the movie where it feels like she really starts to spend again. And even the the evening that Paul is trying to get the Derby winner is the mother and the father are out at this big fancy to do. And she's dressed to the nines. I mean, they're both dressed up, but she is really taking it up and, you know, they've got the car waiting and all these things. So it feels like she has had no problem embracing this windfall of wherever this money has come from. At that point, she is, you know, even though she has this kind of psychic connection, at one moment she has a psychic connection, feels that something is possibly wrong at the house and ends up calling back to the house. But she still stays there, does the whole night out with the father and all this stuff. And it isn't until she comes home that she finally sees that something is wrong with her own child. Absolutely. And I think that's part of what makes that ending as ambivalently potent as it is because yes although at the end she is playing the mother who wants nothing to do with this dirty money she wasn't that mother until very very late in the film and it doesn't feel like a real thing it feels like a great theatrical gesture and and there's there's a point in the film and i don't remember what it is in which somebody says to her that's a big theatrical gesture that you're doing it just feels like the kind of thing that uh, a certain kind of shallow person does when they feel like, oh my God, I'm now on the stage and I'm the bad mother. So I really need to do something that will make everybody feel like, no, I'm not the bad mother. I'm the good person. I'm the one who says, oh, take all that filthy money and burn it as a symbolic gesture when in fact you could do something more valuable with it that probably wouldn't make you look as spectacularly good in the paper the next day, but that would do more good in the world. And again, I think that's an extremely sophisticated piece of screenwriting, frankly, because it flies in the face of the way that this kind of story should, and I put that in quotes, work out. She really didn't get to be like the big martyr at the end. I Again, I'm very surprised that this was written and directed by Anthony Pellessier, who really, as far as I could tell, he had two writing credits before this, one of them being a writing and directing credit for The History of Mr. Polly. And so really, this was the second film that he directed out of six things, which is another strange thing where it's like, 
how can this guy come in and direct these wonderful, wonderful movies and then just kind of not do it anymore? And he's, he's writing and directing at least three of these films. And then that's about it. You know, it's, it's just amazing to me that it kind of reminds me of when we were talking about um, uh, Stranger on the Third Floor, where it's just like, okay, yeah, this guy, he did some some fantastic things, but then he just left this little mark and didn't continue on with a full and lustrous career. Yes, I completely agree. It is it's absolutely fascinating. And it actually made me want to see the Mr. Polly movie, frankly, which is based on an H.G. Wells story, with which I'm not familiar, but I know it was Wells. And uh, it makes me curious, but it's, it's absolutely kind of fascinating and mystifying that he came in and did this movie. And again, you know, he wrote the screenplay, but he did not write the the source material, but turned it into such an incredibly potent piece of filmmaking. There's an astonishing sensitivity in this film to, first, to the kid who plays Paul, very, very sensitive, but also to the adult actors. There's a lot of nuance here that lies underneath the almost proto-noir shadowing and uh, sort of web-like images on the walls and uh, that is really, really remarkable. I'm glad you used the term noir because I kept thinking about that. And I was like, I don't know if it's really appropriate, but it definitely the use of the shadows and especially just the way that the horse will rock in and out of the shadows in certain shots. It's just like, wow, that is really, really well done. Yeah, it's absolutely glorious. And there, there's also that sequence where Paul is riding the horse where there's a focus change from what he's seeing when the horse is rocking forward and what he's seeing when the horse is rocking back that is actually kind of sick-making. It, it's very giddy and vertiginous. But it's very, again, very sophisticated and very potent because it suggests that when he's on that rocking horse, he's in another world that he's seeing, he's still seeing the room that's around him. He's still seeing the same floor, the same walls, the same ceiling, but it suddenly looks vertiginously different and is, is clearly casting him into a psychological state in which he's becoming this deceiver for, well, you know, these words about what horse is going to win the derby or what whatever race is being run next week, because the derby is only the last of them. Uh, one of the things that's actually quite interesting about this movie is the prevalence of, of horse racing, betting influence. You know, it, it's like everybody's into betting on racehorses. It's clearly what people of a certain social status just do. It's, it's what they do for the weekend. They're not going to pictures. They are going to lawn, to croquet parties. They are checking out the horse races. They're figuring out the odds and they're betting on the ponies, which I have to say, I, I, you know, I find kind of interesting because my grandmother was a huge fan of horse racing. I grew up going to the track with her and she wasn't somebody who had a gambling problem. She just liked to go to the track and she liked to bet on the ponies. And her feeling was, okay, you're at the track. Come on, even if you only place a $2 bet, you got to go place of that right because that's why you're here the horse races can be that 
you know, beautiful black and white ball type affair from My Fair Lady where it's the upper crust, you know, enjoying their day out kind of thing. But then it's Bassett as the driver talking about horse races to another driver. And then it's all of the kind of quote unquote second class citizens that are really engaged in the odds and who's going to be coming in this and what are the odds against that. And they're the ones who are throwing around some of these possible winners that are, are they don't necessarily know that Malamar is going to be the one that comes in, but that's where you first hear Malamar's name is in this conversation of all of the limo drivers discussing it with one another. So you've got both the upper crust and the lower echelon talking about these things, but in much different ways. My grandmother was not somebody who would ever go to the Derby, for example, uh, with a fancy hat and, and whatever, but she loved to play the ponies. And, and I would go with her. She would absolutely get out her racing form and get out her pencil and spend quite a lot of time figuring out, looking at the odds as they were quoted, looking at the horses, making calculations, um, and placing her bets accordingly. And to me, at that time, because I was maybe 10, 11, I mean, it was just fun going to the racetrack. I liked horses. It was really fun to see horses. It, it was fun to go around to the part of the track where they walked the horses and just see these beautiful horses up close and then to go back into the stands and see them running. But my grandmother was, was into the whole thing in a very serious way, and it was terrific fun. So to me, that was a, an entree into the not toxic world of horse racing. But certainly later, I met people who were serious, serious gamblers who put to what were to me unbelievable sums of money on races. I, it blew my mind. Yeah, there's a wide gap between My Fair Lady and California Split. And again, because the rocking horse winner is so concerned with money, you get a very precise calculation from scene to scene about what kind of money was won. And by the end of it, it's really serious money. Well, and, and, and we're talking like 70,000 pounds. That was a lot of money. And that was no joke money. <laughs> so, I mean, you could buy a house and you could buy a significant piece of property with that kind of money. That was no joke. All right, we're going to take a break and play a few messages from our friends. They discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com.
The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. All right, we are back, and we were talking about the rocking horse winner. Maitland, you had a rocking horse, and so did I. And you had sent me a picture of yours, so I had to go out and find... I Googled uh, Charger Rocking Horse, and uh, I think it was the same kind of thing where it's just like the model of Rocking Horse, <laughs> though d- definitely different than Paul's. These were not necessarily – I don't even know what you would call these things, like spring-loaded horses. Yes. When I was a child, my sisters and I had a horse named Thunder, and that was definitely the name he came with because none of us named him Thunder, who was a plastic, I guess – injection molded horse on a set of industrial strength springs that attached to a framework. So he was a bouncy horse, basically, rather than a rocking horse. Although interestingly, looking again at rocking horse winner, that horse isn't strictly speaking a rocking horse. I mean, he's in a framework too, so he kind of looks like a bouncy horse. But uh, yeah, Thunder was a very important part of my childhood even when I had outgrown riding thunder thunder was in the room that my younger sisters shared which was the room that had the tv that was not in my parents room so if I wanted to sit up at night and watch you know, some Barbara Steele movie at one o'clock in the morning I would actually be sitting on thunder because he faced the television so I could just sit on the horse and watch you know, castle of whatever uh, in the middle of the night while my sisters were asleep. So I have very fond memories of Thunder. Now tell me about your horse. Mine looked almost exactly like yours. I was very surprised. And the thing that really got me, you know, because we're, we're a few uh, years difference in age, though not not very much. We both definitely had uh, some dangerous-looking horses. <laughs> the, uh, looking at them now today, there are no exposed springs like we had, because you had mentioned uh, when we were talking via Facebook that you distinctly remember getting a blood blister. I think I did as well, because those springs, you know, when you sat down on them, they would extend, and then, yeah, if you got your leg or arm or any other thing caught in, in those springs, say goodbye because those hurt like the dickens those springs were no joke i mean they were probably one inch in diameter they were big springs so you definitely did not want to get any part of your anatomy caught in them and yeah i completely remember getting blood blisters just from being careless and leaning leaning over and touching them and you know suddenly realizing i had an inch long blister on my finger that took three months to go away so, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the new the new breed of rocking horses and there's nothing exposed like that at all. I mean, there are um either cloth uh things that are covering up any sort of moving parts, but there's they've definitely um made these a lot less dangerous than the ones we had. 
And they they look a lot friendlier, too, because Thunder and Charger, Charger was my horse, they didn't look like the friendliest horses in the world, though nowhere near as scary as Paul's, I have to say. No, but Thunder definitely had exposed teeth that were a little Mm -hmm. bit alarming. So, yeah, and and all this, of course, feeds into my I don't want to sound like a cranky person rant of, ah, come on, kids of today, deal with it. You know, all of us grew up with Thunder and Charger, and we're still here. We have all our fingers, and we're just fine. We we would get injured, and we would like it. Look, I have to say, I grew up going to playgrounds that did not have rubber mats under them. I mean, th- those rubber mats 15 years in the future. So if you fell off the monkey bars, or if you got hit in the mouth, as I did, by a metal swing, you didn't forget it. <laughs> and you also didn't stand in front of a swing again. I still have a scar from getting hit in the mouth by a metal swing. It's not a bad scar. Frankly, if I didn't point it out, most people wouldn't see it. But it is still there because I got hit in the mouth by a metal swing because I was the dumb kid standing in front of the swing. That was a life lesson learned. We had swing sets that had no swings to them, so they were just the big metal bars. So maybe you could crawl up them, but that was about it. But for some reason, I don't know if the swings were made out of wood and they rotted or whatever. I mean, the chains weren't there, thank goodness, because that would have been interesting. But just the the bars were there, and that was it. And then we had monkey bars. And I remember parents complaining, though nobody ever seemed to do anything about it. But they were metal, rusty, and then there were gravel and uh, broken glass (laughs) underneath it. So it was one of the most dangerous playgrounds that we had growing up. But, you know, yeah, you just learn to not fall off the monkey bars, I guess. Just for example, although I fell off plenty of monkey bars and I did get plenty of gravel scrapes, you know, I don't want being cut by broken glass, but it was a different experience of childhood. And again, I don't want to sound like the you kids today, but I think that it wasn't a bad thing, actually. I mean, there is something to be learned by learning your physical limits. There's something to be learned from understanding that Monkey bars are terrific fun, and those uh, those vertical, those horizontal climbing bars where you swing across them are fun. But they do come with a certain element of danger, and you need to be aware of it. I'm somebody who is actually physically very careless with myself, which is why I always have a gigantic blooming bruise somewhere or other. But I think part of that is because I grew up realizing that actually that gigantic blooming bruise will be gone in five days. It's not going to scar you forever. And it's not worth being painfully careful every minute of your life, because then all you think about is I'm being careful. I do want to point out that the groundskeepers wouldn't come out at night and restock the broken glass underneath the monkey bars or anything. It was just mostly kids would hang out there. Yes, older kids would hang out, they would break glass and then it would take a while to get cleaned up. So, but the the gravel was pretty much there all the time and so it, it was just one of those, you know, you don't play on that set or you play on, you know, you just play a little bit more carefully on that one. It's one of those civic pride things where it was like, you know, hey, Memorial 
elementary really needs to get some new playground equipment and we would see other schools getting new playground equipment some of the fancier you know wooden stuff that kind of uh you know where it's all connected and you've got bridges and all these things that you know but yeah after a while it became kind of a point of pride like we're the the tough kids we've got the uh you know the broken monkey bars that could stab you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, and we we played in the PS125 playground, which, believe me, was ill-maintained because it was in a bad neighborhood, so nobody could be bothered. And ultimately, did me no harm, and I, I feel there's something to be said for letting kids hurt themselves. Not hurt themselves like break their heads, but it's not a bad lesson to learn that you can hurt yourself and it, it doesn't actually matter that much. Okay, you're picking gravel out of your knee, but it doesn't really matter. But this is a larger philosophical discussion that I've had with actually many people, all of whom disagree with me because they're all of the parenting school of rubber on everything. And I, I kind of feel like my, my particular childhood was one that taught me that you can hurt yourself a little and it doesn't matter. You'll get over it. Well, it also kind of teaches you the laws of gravity as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Don't dive headlong off the monkey bars. It won't end well. Is there anything more we want to say about the rocking horse winner? I think mostly what I came away from reviewing this film was what a really sensitive portrait of a sensitive child it is. And, you know, there are a number of interesting references by the adults in this film to Paul uh, suggesting that he is a special child and he's a sensitive child. And it kind of sounds as though they don't really approve of that. And certainly being a sensitive child works out badly for Paul, but it's not because he's a sensitive child. It's because adults are manipulating his sensitivity to their own ends. And in a lot of ways, I look at it now, and it, it just, it you know, totally sounds like a metaphor for a gay kid growing up in an environment where a gay kid is not an okay thing. And it, it, it actually is very touching, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I can see that, and especially because Paul is so... It almost looks like he's made out of porcelain sometimes. He seems like he could be easily broken and I, I, I can see where you're coming from with that one. Well, especially because he is such a pretty, pretty boy. He's, he's just lovely. And there, there really is a feeling in this film that everybody around him is looking to make him into something different, to make him a tougher kid, to make him useful to them, which he becomes very early in the film, uh, to make him something other than what he is, which is a kid who's very, very sensitive. I mean, his whole relationship with the rocking horse smacks of a sensitivity to other creatures that I think is quite touching. I mean, his joy at the racetrack, I think, is is a turning point in this film because he's clearly so happy, not just to be going out with his Uncle Oscar, who's taking him someplace that he hasn't been before, showing him the reality of the thing that he's been dealing with theoretically. He takes him to the track so he can see the real horses. And there are several shots where you just see the horses being walked around the paddock. Actually, it's not even a paddock, but they're being walked out. And you see how really beautiful they are. And you see Paul looking at them and realizing that horses aren't just a theoretical thing that you bet on. 
they're these beautiful, beautiful animals. And it's, uh, I think it's quite moving. Yeah, for me, it brought up a lot of bad feelings um, when it came to the whole idea of the money and the uh, those whisperings about you know there's there has to be more money. So it would definitely um, it touched a nerve there, uh, which probably not everybody will have that same experience. But to me, it just kind of deepened my appreciation for this film. So I was really glad that you suggested this and that, um, you know, like I said, I think I might've seen it before, but it definitely felt like I was watching with brand new eyes when I watched it again for this. And I think a lot of people will identify with the family whisperings, even if they're not about money, then maybe something else. I think a lot of people grow up in families where there's a lot of stuff going on that supposedly the kids are being protected from. But in fact, they're not because kids hear everything and often draw conclusions that really aren't accurate, but that are what a kid would draw from what they're hearing. So that that constant, the house is whispering, the house won't stop talking, is a really, I think, potent metaphor for growing up in a world where kids aren't let in on grown-up secrets. And yet they know that they know that something is going on, that something's happening that they're not privy to, and yet they're feeling the after effect. They're feeling the, the the rolling shocks of it. Rocking Horse Winter conveys that really, really powerfully, completely apart from its literal narrative. So I think a lot of people who don't care about horse racing, who don't care about English kids in the forties, who don't care about all of the obvious subject matter of this film could look at it and identify with it in a very, very powerful and intimate way. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker. Until then, I want to thank my co-host, Maitland McDonough. Maitland, I know you've had a lot of stuff going on in your life lately, but have you had time to work on your uh, books of late? I have been working on my books, and uh, six of them are now available on Amazon. If you look up my name, you will find Maneater, Night of the Sadist, Three Ring Circus, uh, A Gay Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum, and uh, a pair of gay vampire books, all of which I think are both very entertaining and very interesting in a socio-political way, which is not to say they're heavy books. They're quite a lot of fun, and I absolutely recommend that you take a look at them because I think you might like them. I uh, always admire the work that you're doing with that project. That is just so invaluable to me. Well, thank you, because I do feel that these are books that are a window onto a past that is entirely relevant to the present and that has largely been lost because, frankly, these books were throwaway paperback novels. So there's really no reason why anybody would know them, frankly, now. So republishing them, I think, brings them back into the public eye and lets people see that pulp novels were being used to explore really interesting social, political, and emotional landscapes at a time when it was really tough to do that in mainstream literature. And sometimes it might still be that way. I completely agree. Well, thank you again, Maitland. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. Of course, I'll link over to your books, Maitland, so folks can find those with just one little click of their mouse or a touch on their iPhone or some other smartphone device. you also find some links over at projection-booth.com to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. Every rating and every review definitely helps out the show, helps spread the word and helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.